If you're looking for the best of European football, you have come to the right Champions League place. Welcome to On the Continent. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. On today's Champions League extravaganza, does European football have a new world's best player? And does he have what it takes to stay at the top for as long as his predecessors? And also, what's it like to be punked by Porto? Well, ask Juventus. And Marco Rosa has already been announced as next season's Dortmund coach. Does that make him a lame duck at Borussia Mönchengladbach? Let's start uh, with you, Miguel. Are you... Are you... Well, first of all, what's your reaction to PSG beating Barcelona so, um, so definitively? And what's the consequence of that in terms of your thinking about the, the changing of the guard at the very top of individual football? Well, I, I do think it was maybe a, a confirmation night in two ways. Uh, first of all, actually, I suppose, I think Paris Saint-Germain, after what had been a bit of an indifferent season, maybe an indifferent start under Pochettino as well, announced themselves, I think, as one of the, the super favourites for the competition, along with Manchester City, um, Bayern Munich, and despite their league form, I'd actually say Liverpool, because I think just the nature of the Champions League and the nature of the season could actually reward teams who are capable of still being absolutely top class in one-off games. But of course, as we're all talking about a confirmation night for Kylian Mbappe, and I do think he announced himself as the new best player in the world. That isn't just from this night or from what has been a kind of an uncertain start to, to meet domestic season himself. We really had a kind of, you know, a foreshadowing of this game um, in the 2018 World Cup when him and Messi were on the same pitch. And I suppose, again, once again, related to the quality of teams, Mape was on a different level. But there is a bit more to it than that. I mean, because I, 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 I don't think this is just, just a night when Mbappe looked better than Messi. It was like he himself was going on to another level. He wasn't just this kind of super fast forward. He was a playmaker on the night as well. And you, you see that. This happened to Messi as well. You see that happen with these true greats in that way, where as they develop and they get, I suppose, and, and they fully mature and, you know, we, we know all their physical attributes, they develop their all-round all game as well. And just and I, that was what was so striking about Tuesday. It wasn't just a hat-trick. It was that he was running the entire game. And it, I mean, and in terms of that big question of the best in the world, what, what I immediately thought of, what you're trying to answer it was, like, if, if, if you're looking to play one of them now, Messi or Mbappe or, or whatever, Mbappe just has more ways to hurt more, more teams. Uh, there's just more to his game at the moment, which is remarkable. I mean, you, you probably won't find a bigger Messi fan than me. I do think he's the best player of all time. Um, but he's also close to 34 now. And... Uh, his role has been diluted, diminished. He's had to move around the pitch to accommodate kind of waning physical attributes. Whereas Mbappe is very much coming into his prime or possibly in it. And he's just devastating in so many areas. And I think there's the sense as, as well that Mbappe played this game with quite a lot of economy, I thought. For someone who yeah. is, as you say, um, so incredibly fast, 
I don't think it didn't feel like he bust the gut in this game. It it felt like a very very good game from him, and his best game in a while because either side of Christmas he's he's performed a little underwhelmingly if we're being perfectly honest, certainly domestically. Um, but th- this felt like him ready to impress, but not too ready to impress. I mean, it's something that. Say if we talk of another great, Cristiano Ronaldo in his Manchester United career was some sometimes accused of trying to take too much upon his shoulders on the big occasion. Whereas I kind of felt like Mbappe took just enough on his shoulders. I, I mean, when Miguel was talking before about the fact of his all-round game being something special. And of course, this week with uh, Erling Haaland having that brilliant game at, at Sevilla as well, and there's been a lot of talk about them sort of taking over as, as as the top two in, in European football. There's been even some nascent, you know, who would you rather have in your team sort of sort of chat, which is the precursor to mm-hmm. two years down the line when everyone talks about who's who's the best. Um yeah. For me there's not there's 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 not a question at the moment, even though it's a, a facile conversation, there's no question at the moment because Mbappe's been doing it for longer and he has got that all-round game. Mm. He's had that all-round game for a long time. I think you look at when he just joined Paris Saint-Germain, one of his earliest Champions League nights with um, PSG was uh, when that, when they uh, beat Bayern Munich in Paris, and it was the game that Yeah, facilitated, I was at that game, yeah. Well, it, it facilitated Carlo Ancelotti losing his job the next day, didn't it? And um, Mbappe yeah. was, was yeah. brilliant in that without, without scoring. So he's always had that to, to his game. Now, I just wonder if, again, talk, talking back about another sort of great, uh, maybe not quite as great, but David Beckham always seemed as if he felt to to sort of gild his greatness, he needed to succeed in the centre of midfield rather than playing wide. And I kind of wonder if this is the one little fly in the Mbappe ointment, the idea that he has to play as a fixed point centre forward to be recognised as the greatest. I don't think that really matters. I don't think you can nail him just to one place. And I think the fact that he can pop up all over the shop is one of the things that that makes him so special. I, I think you have a point there, though. I do think you have a point. I, I think the better comparison uh, for Mbappe would be Cristiano Ronaldo uh, in terms of the way he plays and his position as well, uh, slightly, his determination, his speed and so on. Um, but neither Ronaldo or Messi played in the centre. So I wonder, Miguel, whether actually we overrate the players coming through the centre, whereas the real creative players or the players at the very top of their games, they're the ones that can move from the wing into the centre when it's necessary. Because what what Andy said about Mbappe not uh, breaking his stride or you know, really giving it the full welly in this match against Barcelona. I think that is part of the winger's ability to to save some, to conserve a little bit, because he knows he has to sometime move into the centre to take control of the ball. Well, football has changed though, and I think it's interesting there. If you if you look at pretty much, well, uh, most of the top scorers, and again, particularly Messi and Ronaldo, but also players like Salah, they're no longer straight strikers in that way. And it's why Lewandowski and Kane actually are quite distinctive. Most of the scoring now comes from players arriving in the box 
and finishing and taking advantage of, I suppose, breaking ball in that way because it's, it's such a pressing game. And I suppose that ties into something we're going to talk about maybe in terms of Marco Rose and German influence. Um, but yeah, I, I think the game has changed that way. Now, in saying that, R- Ronaldo and Messi were, I suppose, fundamentally wide players, but both came inside a lot and both also ended up playing much more central later in their careers. It's, it's funny, actually, Miguel, when you talk about... Um... The, the the best forwards not being um, typical number nines. It was interesting hearing Edin Terzic, the Dortmund coach, talk about how he'd slightly changed the position of Erling Haaland, who is, I guess, your ultimate out-and-out striker in, in, in so many ways, even if he could develop the back-to-goal a, a little bit more, especially when you bear in mind his size, is the, the fact that Dortmund played a bit deeper and he wanted Haaland to play a bit deeper. So... He could basically beat Sevilla's defenders in a foot race. Uh, he could build up that momentum yeah. to to go past them and to um, and, and to create the opportunities which which he got so well. Going back to Mbappe, though, fellas, I, I do think it's interesting because although you know th- this will I think live in the memories for a lot of people as um, some sort of crowning moment for him that you know he scored a hat-trick against Barcelona at the Camp Nou and so few players have done that and it felt like a changing of the guard etc cetera, etc cetera. well firstly I don't think anyone who watches them regularly has seen Barcelona as a regular champions a genuine Champions League contender for for a while now you know they're so far off having a realistic crack at the at the trophy, you look how easily Paris Saint-Germain got past them without even Neymar and, and Di Maria. And it wasn't just down to, to Mbappe because I think there are other players who deserve praise for it. I thought Leandro Paredes was, was excellent, for example. Um, but it just felt that this moment was a little bit like, you know, when you, you used to hear pop stars in the 80s and 90s say, my mum didn't believe I'd made it till I'd been, been on top of the pops. Is almost like a way of communicating to non-football obsessives that this player has arrived. When, of course, he actually arrived a, a very long time ago, and and this was him having a good night rather than an, a night that um, made him into something extra. Where he took a he took an extra step up into the stratosphere or anything like that. I think as well when you put it in that context, you look at the atmosphere in the build-up to the game when um, the Catalan media in particular were really had the hump about um, stories in France of um, Paris Saint-Germain's interest in Messi. And of course, this all goes back mm-hmm. to, or most of it goes back to when Neymar said um, after the Manchester United game in the groups, come what may, I want to play with Messi next season. And there's only one place that can happen, Paris, because financially it cannot happen in Barcelona. And of course, this was being this was something that was being worked on. It is highly hypocritical, obviously, the Catalan media talking about um, you know someone unsettling one of their players. But I think it was interesting to um, see in the in the build up. It was almost there were parts of the French media that were selling it to themselves. Like we know Neymar's going to stay; he's going to ink that contract in the near future. And whereas it's not so clear cut with Mbappe. Like, Paris Saint-Germain remain confident that they can sign him to a new deal after he'll only have a year left at the end of this season. But parts of the French media were selling it to themselves as, oh, well, you know, well, if Mbappe does go, we could kind of replace him with Messi. But now, Miguel, after this game, what does that look like? I mean, has this brought home the ugly truth of you would be 
replacing, as you say, the next best player in the world with someone who's almost 12 years older than him and who would cost about yeah. 10 times the salary. Exactly. That's exactly it. And I, I was even thinking about it in relation to that, to that big, whatever about who's the better player at this point. Um, I was thinking about it in terms of just that investment and, and that race for Messi made at the end of the season. How is it going to look if you're a club that seeks to throw in whatever, 250 million into Messi rather than, rather than Mbappe? Because, I mean, yes, okay, there might still be debate now, but just by virtue of their age, Mbappe is the future. He's the one that you should be investing your money in. Where would he end up, though? That's a big question, because if Paris Saint-Germain is where the money is... Well, it, it, it's, it's long been suggested that he wants um, Real Madrid, doesn't he? For all sorts. It's, almost like, it's almost like Cristiano reasoning, just Madrid have always been the allure. He's, kind of, he's admired Ronaldo himself. And there does seem a, a certain... I mean, and also, this is, this is one of those transfers that's been trailed for years. Now, I suppose the only big question is that it's the economic situation of Spanish football. Uh, and actually, I, I do think this should be mentioned in all this, that because we, we, we shouldn't go... <laughs> we, should, we shouldn't... I think we, we shouldn't go, like, go and say what PSG are. I mean, ultimately, they're a political project. And there is still... I, I, do, I did find myself in Washington the other night. Um, it, it was impossible not to be wowed by Mbappe. But what all, all, all that's doing as well is there is there's an insidious nature to that in that it's kind of, it's ultimately softening the view of a political project. It's making a political project more attractive and alluring. But there's also a consequence of football here. And let's look what's happening this season, right? We're, we're having a global pandemic, as well as a global pandemic, the effects of the initial outbreak of that pandemic and a usually congested calendar and it's causing huge economic problems for a lot of our biggest clubs. Now, you could say on one level that this was a reckoning that was possibly needed. But the problem is, who is currently looking in the best shape? That's Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. Two basic, two clubs with state backing. And it's no coincidence they, they can come through this uns, unscathed. And it is also relevant to the, to the future of European football in that way, in that clubs like Madrid... Or, or I mean, who, who's who, in this new world? Who is going to be able to afford players like Mbappe if if Paris Saint Germain have so escalated? And that, that's something that actually that Paris Saint Germain targeted in that summer of 2017 when they bought both Neymar and and, and Mbappe. One of, one of the objectives was to drive up wages and fees so high because they knew only a handful of clubs couldn't compete. And we're going we could well see the consequences of that this season and this summer. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, Madrid have been saving up for Mbappe. Everyone knows that. But did it just get a lot more costly? We we know and he knows that a PSG can afford to pay him more than anyone else. And, you know, yeah. that that is where they are because they won't have to spend a transfer fee. They won't have to spend a signing on fee. And they're richer than God. And I think those three things combined. Now, he's always been very clear that he cares about the sporting element of the project. He privileges that above above everything. But I do wonder if it sort of leans into a certain direction, if Real Madrid or maybe even Liverpool can't afford Mbappe this summer and he's unconvinced by the Paris project, are we saying he either re-signs or runs his contract down and it's a, it's a free in 2022? Um, I, th- I think there are a few elements to that. Um, that have, have, have got to fall into place. Now, 
this signing is going to cost PSG a, a lot either way because the the only situation in which PSG don't have to pay Monaco extra this summer is if Mbappe doesn't re-sign but stays because they owe Monaco another 35 million euros when A, he's sold or B, he signs a new contract. So I think even if Mbappe were to go into the last year of his contract, um, obviously there would be a great deal of brinkmanship and butterflies in the stomach if that was the case. But I don't think that necessarily means the end of it all. Now, it's interesting how the talk around Real Madrid and their next superstar target is kind of shifting to to Holland this summer. Because even if they had to purchase him pre-clause coming in in, in, in 2022, that's something that would work out cheaper for them. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And funnily enough, even though you look at the physical stature of the two of them and they couldn't look more different, there's actually quite a lot of similarities to their play, even if Mbappe is a lot further down the line. Miguel, just a quick one. Um, We're talking very much about what it's going to cost Real Madrid. And I think Andy has made a really interesting point there to bring in Haaland, who is the other contender for world's best player of the future. Where's the best place? Where is the best place for primarily Mbappe to be? Quite apart from the money, is Real Madrid the best team for him to go to if he wants to achieve that status of world's best player in the future? I'm actually sure, I'm not sure that's the case anymore because I think this is going to be more of a fallow period for Spanish clubs akin to maybe the 80s or the 70s uh, just because of the economic direction of football and the amount of problems Madrid and Barcelona have. Now, Madrid aren't as bad as Barcelona in that regard. I think they also have, they've got, they've got what they see as sustainable plans. Uh, but if they have to save up so much for Mbappe, what does that say about the ability to put, around, to put a team around them that's competitive or one that he's carrying? Because this is, of course, what's become one of the issues of Messi, say, where he suddenly has to absolutely carry his Barcelona to a greater level than ever before, and it means that they're just not competitive. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's the burden of superstardom that way as well. It's not just about kind of picking the right choice, but picking the right team and making sure you're in the position to really make the best of your abilities. And, it, I mean, it is possible that the best for, for all the dismissal of the French League, the best for his future could be could be Paris Saint Germain, just because of the economic direction of a, of European football, particularly after a pandemic. And also, from Paris Saint Germain's side, you'd be thinking that they should really be throwing all their chips in here, because I mean, whatever about Mbappe's status as a star, he's a Parisian boy who has kind of a group supporting the club. There's a whole culture and you know status around that as well. Me being the veteran of OTC, I'm saying that guardedly. I'm not the old man, I'm just the veteran of OTC. Sometimes I need a little translation. So, Andy, you know, for my generation, when you say punk or punked, you're talking about an anarchist. So, Juventus were punked by Porto. Really? In which way? What does that mean? I'm thinking more the Ashton Kutcher end of the market, <laughs> um, although with a lot more snarling face where Sergio Consasau is, is, is involved. I mean, 
I, I don't know if it seems obvious to say that Juventus underestimated Porto a little bit, but having beaten them comfortably at this stage of the Champions League in, in recent memory, I think they maybe did. Um, I, I know it's the second successive defeat after they lost at um, Napoli last weekend, but this was a very different game. You know, Juventus played a decent game against Napoli. Um, at the end of this one, they're lucky not to be virtually out of the Champions League already. Um, it was a really, really poor Juventus performance. Um, Conceição himself said um, the, the only reason it wasn't a perfect performance from us is that we conceded the, the late goal to Federico Chiesa, which um, changed things um, in terms of the, the, the second leg. And of course, Juventus is still the favourites going into that second leg. Um, I think it is far from a given that they go through because firstly it's, it's mind boggling to think that they could play that badly in a Champions League fixture, uh, a game in the knockout part of the competition that they are trying to win. You know, they're still trying to win this, this, this competition. And every time Cristiano Ronaldo steps on the pitch for them, it is a reminder of where their ambitions lie. Um, but to, to see Ronaldo sort of, you know, berating the referee for a penalty in stoppage time to try and salvage something from it. I mean, you think how far have they have they fallen? Consisau played it very, very well. I, I've, I've no doubt about that. And we'll come to what Porto did right in a minute, I think. But I think that there has to be some examination, not really of Pirlo, but of the Juventus project. Because if they go out at this stage now, which after what happened to them against uh, Lyon last season, I, d- I don't think you can rule out at all. That would mean that, well, th- at the very least, they've been beaten in the l- in the last 16. Um, what do you think of their last three exits, actually, if, if this turns out to be an exit, it would be to a Portuguese league team, uh, a French team, and a yeah. Dutch team. For Juventus, that is so far from acceptable. When you think of the money that they've poured into this project, when you look at the wage bill, it's extraordinary, Miguel. Yeah, something that really struck me last night, and I suppose this points to the, that that project that you speak of, Juventus, was the clash of identities, both within Juventus and in the game they're facing. And obviously, I mean that for that calamitous first goal is basically we've seen this so many teams, so many times, and so many teams attempt this now. That that is basically a, the problem that comes when you're when you're insistent on trying to introduce a proactive possession game with a squad or a team that isn't necessarily ready yet. We've seen those mistakes so so often, and of course, there's an issue then that's come up where Pirlo is basically caught between two stools, which is essentially on one side it's a, it's a modern game that you the, the Uve project want, on the other side it's the actual game that suits the biggest stars they've got, including Cristiano Ronaldo, which is something much more conservative and reactive. But then in the midst of that last night, what, what, what was so ironic about it was Juventus getting done by the sort of approach that they used to be absolutely brilliant at. I mean, and not just Juventus, it was it was almost a vintage, classically Italian-European approach, which is almost as simple as, obviously, obviously to execute, it's not simple, but the actual basics are essentially keeping very tight at the back and not knowing when and how to hurt the opposition in attack. Uh, and it did. Uh, Piero probably deserves some credit, I think, because when he brought on Morata, it did change the game. And Juventus did look a much better team for the last 20 minutes. 
Um, and that away goal does really change the complexion. But it also feels a little bit unfair on Porto because for 65 minutes, they've been so much better in terms of the execution of what they want. Yeah, I guess that first goal was the ultimate definition of being punked. And <laughs> you, you wonder whether the defensive coaches and the goalkeeping coaches of uh, Juve have a lot to answer for. But what what struck me about this and the point that you made a moment or two ago, Andy, about uh, about Cristiano Ronaldo, and it, it wasn't appetising. It was you know quite demeaning the way that he was struggling to get that penalty. Usually in games like this, he can make a difference, but he couldn't. He couldn't. Uh, Porto wanted to win this, and Cristiano Ronaldo, okay, might be past his best, but he's not the game changer anymore. No, you're right, and I think in this context, uh, the Dragao, where he's always got a bit of a reception, it's fair to say, as a, a former sporting player, although not not quite the one he got with um, uh, Manchester United when he he went to Benfica. Um, th- this is a game where you know when we reach the last sixteen of the Champions League and we look through. Uh, these compilations of best Champions League goals and, you know, best Champions League goals by Messi and by Ronaldo. One of the ones that always pops up was that one that he scored in the quarterfinal against uh, Porto for, for for Manchester United, where he smashes it in from about 40, 45 yards. And you're right, at that point, there's nothing that you can do to stop Cristiano Ronaldo. Now he's very much a service-dependent player and he has been for a very long time. Yeah. And I think that's where... Miguel's Morata point comes in that Morata is um, his his rubber ring in the sea. Really, you know, Morata is the player it's who Benzema. can. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is what he's always needed and what he's mm. always wanted in 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 recent years. And um, I think his introduction made a made a huge difference. But but yes, I think to see him go back to Portugal and not run the show is particularly jarring especially in a stadium where he's, he's made so many big contributions you know he scored hat tricks for the national team there in, in in recent memory if you go back to the the nations league as well but look make no mistake porto played this really really well and they've had their their difficult time recently and sergio Conceição sort of shrugged it off in the press conference because of course the, the fact that porto have had three successive draws in the league and Sporting have extended their lead to to 10 points at the top, means the title is almost certainly gone. Um, But when he was asked in the press conference afterwards, uh, how have you got through this tough time? He said, well, look, there there, there are people out of work and there are people really ill out there. So I'm not going to be sitting here talking about a tough time. You know, we're, we're paid to play football and, you know, they do have that kind of, um, blue collar value to them. This Porto team, I think, if you look at them player for player, they are nowhere near the most talented side, Porto side that we have seen. If you go back through um, Villas Boas, Gisualdo um, Ferreira, even you know, not not even going back as far as Jose Mourinho, you know, there've been some much more um, entertaining, gifted Porto sides. But this lot are really physical for a, a, a Portuguese team. They've got this never give up attitude. And, you know, they were just so much more committed to this tie and to getting something out of it than than Juventus, I think. Oh, the, their second goal in the beginning of the second half actually showed that, showed determination. It was a, it was a decent goal, actually. Uh, Mikel, though, 
Juventus clearly have to do something in the second leg. And when they look back, when they look back on the videos of their performance, they already know that they were rubbish. But when they look back, I think they might be very embarrassed, particularly their performance in the first half. Now, if Pirlo is not to blame, what does the team then have to do to turn things around? If they hadn't gotten that one away goal, I'm not sure that they would be favourites for this. On, on, on the whole, but they've got that. They've got that in the bag. It, I think it was just a crucial goal in that regard because it, it doesn't just change the complexion. It changes what you they can do, what they need to do, and and, and just the, the threshold of, of required to go through. And from that perspective, for all for all, we've been kind of criticising Ronaldo here. I mean, it really isn't inconceivable. Let, let's remember Atletico Madrid in the same season they went out to Ajax where... Suddenly, it could even be not a great performance in Turin, but you get two of the right balls into Ronaldo. He scores two headers. We're having the same conversations again about his everlasting talent, about how this is, you know, this is the ultimate Champions League player. Uh, and so we really shouldn't rule that out. But also, if even as that happens, it sh- it shouldn't over it shouldn't allow um, dismissal of the of the of the fact that Juventus have problems to solve. And I think one of the biggest problems is, uh, and it's becoming a re- it's becoming a really interesting question: Can Juventus play the type of football that they want in the medium term? The Pirlo is clearly there to do with Ronaldo in the team. Uh, Sarri had the problem, and I, I mean, obviously, I suppose, given the scope of football history, you should always be siding with what Ronaldo can do for you rather than what uh, Sarri can do for you. But it is suddenly a live issue, and it, it, it might feel remarkable to say that about one of the greatest players of all time, but. It's true. And we saw the effect of that last night. Andy, you, you wanted to talk about Conte Sao. Um, he had to essentially preside over a team with big budget cuts, but he was able to bring his son into the mix as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you talk about, I guess, Juventus managing a, a, a budget uh, and budgetary issues, um, a lot of those relating back to the fact that they're paying an absolute ton to Ronaldo and a, a, a lot to players they signed for free, like Ramsey and Rabiot as well. Um, what Concisau has, has done for a club that's been ailing financially is pretty remarkable. I mean, I do wonder if he will come up against Juventus in, in, in Serie A at some point in the future. Um, maybe, I guess, Lazio, one of his former clubs, would be um, one of the ones if uh, Simone Inzaghi chose to, to, to move on. But it's remarkable that to think when he took this this, this job over and before this season, he's, he's won the title two years out of three on like not much of a budget at all. You know, Michael Silva, before um, he came to Watford, was offered the Porto job. And they said, well, basically, your deal is you've got to win the title back from Benfica and we've got to sell 100 million euros worth of players. How does that sound? And he was like, you know what? I see my future as being in in, in the Premier League. Whereas Concisau broke a big contract that, that he just signed with Nantes, partly for family reasons, but partly because Porto was something that spoke to him. And, you know, he, he took on a really tough job and he's, he's made an amazing job of it because I think still there's this cliche of Porto being these transfer market kings, which they're not anymore at all. Um, if you look forward to, to, to next summer, they're going to lose another couple of 
big players for free. Otavio and uh, Musa Marega, who scored the second goal, will both go for, for nothing. Marega will probably come to the Premier League and um, there, there are clubs like Sevilla and Milan interested in Otavio. Um, so he's had to make do and mend. And also this story of his son coming into the team, Francisco, the middle one of his, his five sons, it's an extraordinary tale because he played his first minutes for the Porto first team at 18 years old at the weekend. He came on against uh, Bovista and um, that they were losing. He helped them get back into the game and uh, he won a penalty after they come back from 2-0 down to get to 2-2, which Sergio Oliveira, the captain, having already scored one penalty, then missed. Then Francisco Concisao got the ball again and Honestly, the, the talent is something. He's so slippery on the ball. There's a little bit of Paolo Futre about him, dare I say it. Um, he set up what looked like a winner for Evan Nielsen. It was celebrated wildly. And it was one of those moments where the whole world around Concesao Senior and Junior stopped. Um, it was just father and son hugging each other, looking into each other's eyes crying. It was a beautiful moment. And then obviously the goal was disallowed five minutes later by VAR, which is the most heartless borderline application of VAR that I've seen of all the many VAR moments we've, we've seen and complained about over the last while. It was one of the worst, but I kind of feel that this was their fairy tale ending because against the team that Concesao uh, Senior has had so many battles with in Serie A, his son comes on near the end, helps them tough it out, and makes his Champions League debut at 18. Thanks. It's more like Hal and um, Space Odyssey rather than VAR. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> cruel. In the Bundesliga, there's an impending changing of the guard. Um, certainly for Dortmund, they've got a new coach. This is announced mid-season. Uh, Marco Rosa is going there, but what about his current position at Mönchengladbach? Where does that where does that leave him? Do you, do you understand why they do this, Miguel? They, they announce the new coach in the middle of the season. Effectively, I would have thought leaving the coach in his current job as a lame duck? Well, it's happened a few times in European football, and some, it's, I mean, with, with players more so, the situation has often happened to Dortmund. So I suppose it's maybe for a different twist the, the next time they suffer for it. But yeah, I mean, we, we have seen this. And I, I suppose it's different when there's an element of goodwill from the club and almost an appreciation for what you've done. And then, there's, then it, be, it becomes a different kind of momentum about it, where it becomes about kind of let's end this the right way rather than let it peter out. But of course, it does create. I mean, with the, with the most classic example of all time being Ferguson's decision to announce his retirement for two thousand and two, it, do, it it can lead to a kind of a, a psychological slackening off because player players know the manager's not. It's subconscious, but it does happen. Uh, and there is a danger to it, but I suppose it's something that's impossible to avoid, ultimately because news will leak out. So it's better that all the, all the parties involved get a handle of it. That, that, that's why it happens, uh, but it isn't necessarily always for the best. That's it, isn't it? It's to stop that drip, drip, drip of 
of, of speculation. And, yeah. um, you know, you know, I, I think the, the, the thing is, uh, there was, I mean, there's amicable ends to, um, a business relationship and there's just business-like ends to a business relationship. I, I think this kind of falls more towards the latter, really. I mean, the club haven't really criticized Marco Rosa, but uh, Max Erbel, the sporting director, has said, well, look, I know people are criticizing us for the clause, but you know, if you want to criticize the situation, don't cr- criticize Rosa, criticize me, because I put the clause in his contract. And if I didn't put the clause in his contract, he wouldn't have come to Borussia Mönchengladbach in, in, in the first place. Um, which I, I, th- I think is right. I mean, as, as Miguel says, we've had this happen before many times, um, especially in German football, where bear in mind, Julian Nagelsmann was announced as mm. the next Leipzig coach a full year yeah. before he actually took took the job on. I realise realize this is slightly different this time because um, there's a direct rivalry to get a Champions League place now between Borussia Mönchengladbach and Borussia Dortmund. So you're sort of fighting to keep your integrity in the present while closing your eyes and not worrying too much about the future. Because if he's kind of backing a project that could completely change what he goes into at Dortmund, if they don't arrive in the Champions League, as we said last week, Dotton, not only does Sancho have to go, but maybe they have to sell a Reina, a Rafael Guerrero, maybe even, God forbid, an, an Erling Haaland. So... In terms of the team that he'll have around him next season, whether they make the Champions League or not, this will have a massive effect. Of course, after that win in Sevilla in the last 16, mainly authored by Holland, um, maybe maybe they'll win the thing and maybe that's their way of getting there. I don't know. Stranger things have happened in the Champions League over the last while. But they feel happy that they've got Rosa. There's no doubt about that. Because especially in recent weeks, there's been this feeling of not only... They knew that Edin Terzic, the, the, the current incumbent, the former um, assistant to Lucien Favre, wasn't going to be the long-term solution. He wasn't going to be their handsy flick. But there's just been that lack of leadership on and off the pitch and that feeling of we need this alpha with a strong philosophy who can really lead us forward. And, of course, the idea that Dortmund have, have kind of mourned since Klopp, this lack of you know, a real snarling, jumping up and down on the touchline, crash, bang, wallop kind of football sort of leader, which is what they feel that Marco Rosa could do. And of course, Marco Rosa played for Klopp at Mainz and he's very much Klopp endorsed. And I I think that counts for a lot. I suppose the good news, Miguel, for uh, Gladbach, mention Gladbach fans, is that uh, Rosa, being a gentleman, has promised not to nick any of their players and take them with him to Dortmund, uh, which is great. great. But just in case he stops being a gentleman, which of the players at Munchen Gladbach would he take <laughs> with him to Dortmund? Just in case. <laughs> well, I mean, that's another situation we've seen many times in the past as well. And let's not forget, it's not usually the managers that make the decisions anymore. It's sporting directors above their head. So that's kind of almost a little bit of an empty call. I suppose, I mean, the big one, especially given this, this Champions League season, is uh, is, is, is Thoram. Um But, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Uh, now, I suppose... Dortmund have always, I mean, Dortmund aren't quite Bayern in that way. They're not, I mean, even though as these things go, it tends to be trickle down and everyone's always coming in the next step. But they're not not quite as, um, 
they haven't been quite as ruthless in terms of always taking the players or hobbling the, the teams from just below them. I don't think they're above nicking other kids' lunch money, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, I, I think ev- everyone assumes that, that it's, it's all Bayern. I agree with you um, because they're the biggest and the best and they have been for so long. But I'll, I'll never forget Jurgen Klopp saying when, um, of, of course, uh, the ultimate in uh, pre-announced transfers was when the Mario Goetze to Bayern story leaked yeah. just um, what two days before the or day and a half before the semi-final in the Champions League against Real Madrid and Klopp was very sanguine about it um, again um, they're, they're victims if you, if you like of uh, a pre-arranged buyout clause in the contract and he said look we did exactly the same to Borussia Mönchengladbach to buy Marco Royce off them so you know it, it is just swings yeah. and roundabouts and you know Dortmund have, have, have used clauses since to to, to, to bring in other players, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. But I do think Rosa has taken a little bit of a risk because if he doesn't, if they don't make Champions League, it is a completely different job to the, the one that he's going to be doing otherwise. I was, I was impressed though that Edin Terzic, and I'm pleased for him actually, because he comes across as a, a good guy who's putting a good effort and is, is really just not, had the requisite authority with a team that's and a squad that's more pig-headed than you would think. Um, they've managed to produce good bits of football, really good bits of football in 2021, but only in really 10, 15 minute spells. I, th- I think the thing that impressed me against Sevilla is like in the second half, they defended and for the bulk of it, they defended pretty well. So I don't think you can quite talk about it as a turning point yet, but I don't know if I was of a Dortmund persuasion, what would give me hope is that the players do seem invested in it. And I think the fact that they know Rosa is going to be there at the end of the season for someone like Holland, for example, this is absolutely huge. And say, as we're going back to the beginning, if someone doesn't have the money to buy him, which I think is, I think is quite possible. He needs to be convinced that he can stay at Dortmund the extra year. And knowing Rosa is coming and knowing that the club has a plan is big for that, I think. Yeah. As well as that, I do wonder, I mean, I wrote a piece in this last, or actually started this week for the kind of the resumption of Champions League, but with congested schedule and the kind of, there are, as with some domestic leagues, we are going to see a few distortions we wouldn't usually get. And I wonder whether we'll see a situation similar to the start of the expanded Champions League in 2000, 2007, where clubs are clubs are actually still they're adjusting to kind of the, the Europeans. They're not they're used to having so many games, or in this case, so many games in such quick succession. And it all it, what what it meant at the turn of the millennium for about eight years was that clubs that were having indifferent or sorry, poor domestic seasons suddenly raised it in Europe. It might have been a psychological bonus, maybe it's just because it was an opportunity to get reform. But a lot of those champions from Milan to Liverpool to Real Madrid finish kind of fourth and fifth. And I wonder it could be in a situation here just across the board where it's just one of those strange seasons where teams that are having poor domestic campaigns just see an opportunity in Europe. And Dortmund could be a case of that as well. Because, I mean, the, 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 there was such a drastic difference between their performance against Sevilla and what they did at the weekend. 
It's fascinating when we're talking about German coaches. That always seems they seem to be very much uh, an important factor in the success of teams nowadays. I know every generation has its sort of uh, regional coaches, uh, you know, Italian coaches or Dutch coaches, etc. It does seem to be. It does seem to be like we're in the era of the German coach now, Andy, that, you know, look at what Tuchel has done at Chelsea, for example, has turned their fortunes around. What, mm. what, what's going on? What, what do these German coaches have in approach to the game or the style that they uh, get their teams to play out? What, why are they the popular choice for amongst coaches in Europe at the moment? Well, I, th- I think it all goes back to uh, Euro 2000 and the aftermath of that, the fact that that was a, a kind of a, a year zero for um, German player development and I, I think this has a huge knock-on effect for for coaching um there was a definite impetus put on the Bundesliga teams in a way that could never happen in England because the Premier League clubs have too much power to just back their academies and, and put a lot more in and start creating a different type of football really and a different type of footballer and that's something that led to the 2006 World Cup later led on to various finals and then the the, the win in, in in 2014 in in Brazil so i think coaching and the development of players is a discussion that has completely changed in the 21st century in germany mm. now i guess another thought we've had out of the champions league this week miguel is what next for julian nagelsmann because i don't know about you but i felt quite strongly the way in which I went out of the Champions League last season. And of course, they did brilliantly to get to the semi-final against Paris Saint-Germain, su- suggested that there's very much a ceiling here. And I had that feeling again against Liverpool where they weren't terrible, but they were um, undermined by a, a few big mistakes at, at, at key moments, which are kind of a legacy of generally of having young players, although obviously mm. the mistake for the, the first goal was made by a quite experienced player in, in Marcel Zabitzer. I wonder when Nagelsmann decides to move on because he is intensely ambitious. Where does where does he end up? To to me, I think the Premier League seems quite a clear option. Yeah, completely. Uh, in fact, there's been indications he's already looking in that direction. And just as, just as regards Leipzig this season, I mean, the, the proof of recent football history is kind of. Financial disparities escalated and teams have been stripped apart more quickly. I mean, just as a classic example of that, if you look at the partisan Belgrade team that got to the final in 1967 as a kind of a modern, as an equivalent of the time of a surprise team doing well. I remember doing a piece in this, and I think it took them six or seven years to be stripped apart, um, or I'd say the, the 700 players to go. Now, obviously, there were other reasons because of kind of, you know, Yugoslavia was a communist state at the time, all the rest of it. Whereas nowadays, a team that does well on a given season, they often use, lose the majority of their players within a year. And the recent proof of football is no matter how well a club is run, no matter how good the model, performance levels just can't be sustained if you keep losing big players. And again, Dortmund are a classic example of that, as are Tottenham Hotspur, who are one club who've been seriously looking at um, uh, at Nagelsmann. I mean, I, I've already heard, heard in the last few weeks that if Spurs would were to get rid of Mourinho, which is something I don't think that will happen at least until the end of the season. Nagelsmann is on the list, uh, but 
that's I think Nagelsmann has almost outgrown Spurs at the moment, and I think he'd be looking much higher. Chelsea were interested in before they they went to Tuchel, from what I've heard, because they re, as much because they realised Nagelsmann wasn't available, um, and I think he'd be looking at maybe a top job in England, uh, one of the real big four. It's the point where we ask you to select a game of the week for us to uh, enjoy. Uh, do you have one, uh, Andy, first? Um, yeah, I think there, there are some really good ones this weekend. And I'm really keen to see how um, Bayern Munich get on uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, who are absolutely on fire at the moment on Saturday afternoon. However, there can only be one, and it has to be the Milan derby on uh, Sunday afternoon. Of course, Inter have just finally taken over at the top uh, from Milan after Milan surprisingly lost to Spezia, which Nicky wrote about so brilliantly in The, the, the Guardian this week. I know, I know. Um, uh, it, it, it feels like Inter have got this moment that they have to seize. And uh, if they can at least get a result that keeps them top of the table, that will be the next little test for them. But... I don't know. I feel that Milan have still got a little bit in the tank. This is where we see whether Inter have got the sang-froid to close out the title, I think. Uh, Miguel, so if you've got the Milan derby to compete with. Can you match yeah. that? Well, see, see, since Andy took that one off me, I'm going to go for um, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and Monaco. Uh, as much because of the situation at the table, of course, as all the uh, the hype around the map this week, especially given... This is all club and some of the subplots we've mentioned in this very show. And, and of course, because, I mean, there is, let's not forget, as good as uh, Paris Saint-Germain looked in Europe, there is, at the moment, that bit of pressure on them in France. Uh, and, I mean, for, for, for Pochettino, or for this team not to win the league this season, would be, would be huge. Uh, I, I, I still suspect they'll eventually tear away, but they need to win a game like this to do so. And so there's a bit there. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.